Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like It's Dirty Bird Yeah, they're just a couple guys Who really like birds It's Dirty Bird Yeah, they're pretty dirty But they really like birds Hello, Dirty Bird Podcast listeners. I'm currently in the throes of residency and don't have a ton of time to record right now. I do have some episodes in the works. Um, They're based on listener suggestions of birds y'all want to hear about, and I'll be releasing those in just a few weeks. If there's a bird you want to learn about, just let me know and I'll do an episode on it. However, in the meantime, today I have a special episode I recorded several months ago. It's a collaboration between myself and Katie Osborne of the Fisherwoman Podcast. In the Fisherwoman Podcast, Katie, a graduate of Humboldt State MS program in fisheries, talks with interesting people from the fisheries world. As fellow nature lovers, Katie and I had a great time swapping facts about fish and feathers. This was my first ever collaboration episode, so forgive me, I'm a little bit awkward in the intro. But uh, it doesn't help that I had to hide underneath a blanket to try to improve the sound quality. Anyways, here's the episode. I hope you enjoy. Um, I'm going to kind of go in a blanket for it here so that the sound's a little better. Um, I'm, I'm in my attic, and um, uh, there's some kids that have been playing in the snow outside, so I figure I'll try to at least cut out what I can. <laughs> um, all right. Well, would you like to just go ahead and try to start or something? Sure. I'm Katie Osborne. I host the Fisherwomen podcast, which launched in September. And on that show, I talk with fisheries professionals and enthusiasts uh, from all walks of life about why we love fish and why they're important and what we're doing to try and help them out. And I'm John, and I do a podcast called Dirty Bird Podcast, and it's uh, about birds, of course, and kind of talk in a laid-back way, the way you would like in a bar with a friend um, about a sports game, except talking about, I don't know, what the Northern Flickers are doing in your yard. And um, I reached out to Katie. We kind of use the same podcast hosting uh, site, and I reached out to her and asked her, hey, do you want to do a podcast about birds and fish? And, And luckily, she said yes, and so... That's what we're doing today. Okay, great. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, Katie, uh, I really like your podcast. You do a lot of interviews um, with uh, people in the in the fishing and fishery world, um, especially uh, those who um, don't have a, a huge representation in the field, um, women and minorities, and um, kind of amplify their voices. Um, it's, it's really cool. Um, so, you know, thanks for, for talking with me, and, and this will be fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to do it. Thanks for the invite. And uh, yeah, your invite prompted me to finally check out your show, which I'd kind of been putting off for a while. So uh, yeah, I listened to the Nuthatch episode because it it recommended it as a starting place. So 
Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. The little brown headed nuthatch. That's um, not, and um, today we're talking about, going to be talking about estuaries. The um, brown headed nuthatch is kind of a little bit of uh, estuary bird. He likes to hang around like the pine trees, uh, uh, like at least in the tidal areas on the Chesapeake Bay I've been. Um, so that's a great one for you to listen to. Katie, you, you know a lot more about like fish and the environment than I do. Um, why don't we start off? Can we talk about like what what even is an estuary technically? Yeah, so I'm going to nerd out a bit because I got my start in fisheries working in the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta, the largest estuary in California. And after a few years there, I decided I needed to go back to school. Luckily, my advisor offered me my pick of projects, and one was on estuaries. So I went from the biggest estuary in the state, actually the biggest until you get to Puget Sound, which is a fjord-type estuary, to some of the smallest, these small river estuaries that really dominate the West Coast. So estuaries can be these big river deltas like Chesapeake Bay, or they can just be the last few miles of a river feeding directly into the ocean. You've seen this if you've ever walked a beach with a river crossing, you know that crossing gets deeper and shallower with the tides. The last few miles of that river is an estuary. It's going to be heavily tidally influenced. The water at the river mouth might go from nearly fresh to nearly marine. The temperature is going through these twice daily swings according to the tides. And you're going to see the plants and animals change rapidly as you move up that river from the ocean to where the water is reliably fresh. So estuaries can be big or small, heavily populated or remote. They don't even need to have a continuous year-round connection to the ocean in order to be considered estuaries. When the connection to the ocean gets cut off, you get a lagoon-type estuary, which we're learning are really important to steelhead. But anyway, all you need for an estuary is freshwater and marine influence. The interplay between the tides and the river creates a dynamic system where water depth, salinity, and temperature are all changing twice per lunar day. All that energy makes estuaries highly productive, and a lot of coastal species will enter estuaries in summer to feed. Other species depend on estuaries for access to and from the ocean. So we use estuaries to access inland ports, not unlike salmon who need to be able to pass through estuaries as out-migrating smolts and later as returning adults. Estuaries also have relatively few predators compared to the ocean, so a lot of marine species think Dungeness crab, English sole, They migrate to estuaries as larvae, spend a few months growing up in the estuary, and then return to the ocean by winter. Mm -hmm. And this is another key component of estuaries. They are highly seasonal. In addition to the tidal changes happening each day, you have big seasonal effects from the river feeding into an estuary. So maybe there's a huge storm that totally blows out the river mouth and moves everything around. That sort of thing makes estuaries really hard to remain in year-round. 
Yeah. So you get this influx of species spring through fall and a few hardy species staying through winter. Now, all types of estuaries, big and small, are important to fish and other wildlife because they offer high productivity, low predation pressure, and passage to and from the ocean, which is exciting because it means your little backyard estuary hosts all kinds of summer visitors, juvenile rockfish and flatfish, smelts and sculpins, salmon and steelhead, Yeah, use these little estuaries in the same ways they use large estuaries. Because for many coastal species, estuaries are essential habitat. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's this place of, yeah, the constant change. And um, it's so cool that these animals, I mean, they thrive in that chaotic, you know, it's a like nursery for young fish and then like birds like to breed there. And so it's like they thrive in this environment, which seems like it's just pure chaos. Um, and uh, so they're super important environmentally. Um, Thanks for bringing up the Chesapeake Bay, because that's mainly where I'm going to talk from um, <laughs> about, you know, the estuary environments that I know and love. And then uh, you, you of course, are out um, in kind of the Pacific Northwest area. So, uh, you know, uh, all uh, about those environments. Um, so uh, I don't know. Do you want to start us off with like one of your favorite estuary species? Uh, sure. Well, So I spotlight two of my favorite fish in a couple episodes. So in the pilot, I talk about one of my very favorite fish, the Pacific Staghorn Sculpin. They're just a really badass fish. I mean, they're not, they're not very big. Um, They're not very pretty. Well, (laughs) I mean, I think. Yeah, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. So like they look really cool, but they don't look pretty. Um, and they can swallow a fish that's half their size because they're like all head and their head is all <laughs> mouth. And I mean, you can fit them in the palm of your hand. And when you do, they'll flatten their heads and they'll spread their antlers. Uh, they're not true antlers, yeah. of course. But uh, their gill covers, their opercula, have these extensions on them that look like antlers. And that's where they get their name, staghorn. Yeah. And they'll flatten their heads to extend their horns. And then they'll growl. (laughs) And, like, you can feel them vibrating in your hand when they growl. and, (laughs) And it's awesome. I tell people that fish have... An emotional spectrum. It's just an emotional spectrum of anger. Yeah, and that's all a real from, pissed off staghorn when it's growling. Yeah, at all, you. all the way from apathy to like really <laughs> pissed off. And staghorn are really good at the really pissed off, um, and they just love to eat. I dissected a staghorn one time, and he had a shrimp in his belly that so filled his belly that the antennae of the shrimp were sticking out from his mouth. (laughs) We have a, um, uh, a fish, we call them croaker that are in the Chesapeake Bay. And, um, they kind of do the same thing where they like make a growling croak thing and, and you can feel it vibrating. Um, and I've definitely, when the, um, the shrimp are like in there, I've definitely experienced catching fish and the antenna are coming out and I'm like, what the heck is going on? And then I realized, Oh, it's all the shrimp. So 
Yeah, yeah. So that's one of my favorites. And another favorite is uh, Three Spine Stickleback. Uh, you can find them everywhere. They will live along the coast. They'll live in totally fresh water. Some oh, really? populations are anadromous, like salmon. And they'll go between, you know, they'll spawn in fresh water and then they'll go out to the coast. Oh, no way. That's super cool. Yeah, they they only live for a year. Um, and the males, so in the fish world, parenting is really rare. But when it does occur, it tends to be dad, not mom. So Finding Nemo got that part right. <laughs> uh, they didn't get a lot of other things right, but they got that part right. Um, and so three spines stickleback really exemplify that they've got this whole elaborate fatherhood routine that I'm not going to go into because I've like got an episode on that but uh, <laughs> essentially they there's research that so they'll wave their pectoral fins which are very large uh, that's what evolved into arms in you and me and wings, wings in birds yeah. uh and so they'll wave their pectoral fins to oxygenate their eggs and they'll change how fast they wave their pectoral fins as the eggs mature so as they grow and develop they need more oxygen and so dad will wave his pectoral fins faster but if they're in an environment with a lot of predators, he'll deprive them of oxygen just a little bit so that they're not so colorful when they grow up. And that way they're not as obvious to predators. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So those are like those two fish, Pacific Staghorn Sculpin and Three Spine Stickleback. You can pretty much find them in any estuary in the like temperate North American coast yeah. at any time of year. That is awesome. Uh, yeah, those are t two fish with a lot of personality. Um, and I like that you, you know, you mentioned personality too, because I definitely like uh, see that a lot, you know, with birds, like different species have like different temperaments and everything. And um uh, I don't really think about it with fish much, but um, I think I definitely will more after, you know, hearing about them and everything from you, um, uh, especially like um, I know when I'm fishing in the Chesapeake Bay, you know, I'll catch, uh, sometimes you can tell just from the way when you catch something like what it is, you know, if it's like a puppy drum or like, or if it's a big croaker um, for me, like I can usually tell by kind of the, the way they're tugging on the line or if they're running with the line or something. So I guess maybe that's like part of their personality too and stuff. So um, that's, th those are. It's definitely part of it. A lot of popular sport fish species like striped bass, people love catching them because they put up a fight. Other fish like brown trout just like to hang out in a hole all day or even all year. So working on the Trinity River, we floated over this big brown trout, total lunker. And a month later, we floated over him again hunkered in the same spot between the same exact rocks and two months after that we floated over him again in that same spot well cool um so all right my turn with some estuary birds 
Uh, okay, and <laughs> go for it. I feel bad because I realized all the birds I'm going to be talking about just love to eat the <laughs> probably some of the fish that you talk about. Well, yes, but so I tend to shy away from those narratives of there's not any fish because of all the mergansers or because of all the sea lions or because of all the whatevers. Because in all of those situations, as soon as you start to dig, it's invariably on us. And the deeper story is usually something to the effect of, we came to this estuary and it was so beautiful with such a great convenient location that we filled in the marshes and turned them into farmland. We channelized the streams for shipping and water delivery. Yeah. We built all these levees and dams for flood control and water storage, which is all kinds of useful for growing crops and providing drinking water. But there's also way less habitat for fish. And what remains looks totally different. (laughs) And of course, now that we've settled the estuary, there's way more people and there's not enough fish to feed all the birds and all the people. So when you ask an estuary to provide all these services, shipping, agriculture, flood control, you name it, you start to chip away at that estuary's ability to provide habitat to the fish and wildlife it's provided for for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. So we really need to learn to rewild systems to let rivers be rivers and yep. estuaries be estuaries this doesn't mean going back in time to some pristine idea of nature it just means we need to find ways to reduce our demands on the natural systems we depend on mm-hmm. and find places of compromise with nature So these systems can continue to provide for us and for the fish and for the birds, too. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're super important, not just to other species, but to us. And, yeah, if we put too much stress on them, then we're going to lose this super important um, habitat for not just other species, but one that we depend on, too, for, yeah, the reasons you just mentioned, flood control, uh, drinking water, and uh, uh, enjoying it recreationally, too. Um, So uh, one of the birds I want to talk about is one that definitely anyone all over North America has, like, seen and enjoyed in, in estuaries. I always think of these guys when I was like early morning out fishing with my dad, um, great blue herons. Um, they're the largest heron um, or largest, um, yeah, largest heron in North America and the third largest in the world. They're, they're really big and impressive. And you always see them kind of like stalking along the side of um, the shore, uh, maybe at low tide or something, and then spearing fish with their bill um, and eating them. And, they are just basically wherever there's water, um, not just estuaries, but I've also seen them like up in some of these mountain streams up here in West Virginia. And they always look kind of like an old man in a gray coat to me uh, when they're kind of like hunched up with their neck tucked in. They look like just like an old man that's with these raggedy feathers and everything. So I really like them. And uh, another thing I really like about them is they're basically like modern day dinosaurs. Um, the yes. Heron family... Yeah. have You've heard them squawk before, right? Oh, I just, I think they look like dinosaurs. 
Yeah, they look like it. They do like this croak sound, which like is is right out of the Cretaceous period. Uh, uh, and looking at the fossil record, they evolved like alongside dinosaurs. Like sixty million years ago, we have some of our first fossils of herons. So that's like right at the end of the Cretaceous. They survived the you know asteroid and extinction event. Um, so they're just like these living fo- like I just think of Jurassic Park when I see them, and they're just stabbing and eating eating lots of little minnows and everything. Uh, and kind of proving how much of dinosaurs they are, they also eat stuff like frogs or small mammals. Um, there's even videos on YouTube where they're eating squirrels. So, like, that sounds like a dinosaur to me. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and I I see them everywhere. I, I see them on rivers and on beaches and, you know, flying through the hills looking for a stream, I guess. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they're definitely one of my favorites, and uh, it's just so cool to, to see them kind of walking around, stalking around the water, uh, just some really cool fishermen. Um, and another really good fisherman bird um, and fisherwomen birds are the double-crested cormorants. Um, they are so cool because they're like half snake, half bird when you look at them uh, in the water. It's just like their long head poking out of the water and some of their back. And they're always diving under and they actually will swim under the water and chase fish and um, chase them down. And they have this like hooked bill they'll grab them with to, to then gobble them down. Um, and I also saw stuff where if uh, they won't just eat fish, they'll also eat crustaceans too. And uh the Chesapeake Bay, there's like tons of crabs and fiddler crabs and all kinds of stuff that um, I see these guys sometimes go for. And they'll take them and they'll actually beat them against the surface of the water to break off all the legs. They don't like crab legs. They just want like the body. And then they'll gulp the rest of it down. Um, they're probably breaking off the claws too, I think. But uh, uh, they are just uh, awesome birds. And um, uh, I know you definitely have seen them up in the Pacific Northwest a lot too. Yeah, but so I'll just what I love about cormorants is um, you can always see them drying their wings. You know, most birds they preen with that oil, and that helps keep their feathers all nice and aligned for good flight and shiny and dry. But cormorants don't have that oil, and so yeah, I love that every time I see them spreading their wings, it like reminds me of this another step in evolution where they've abandoned this really useful oil so that they can dive deeper to get more fish. Yep, exactly. Um, Basically, like birds like ducks, you know, they have a lot of oil to repel the water, keep them nice and fluffy and dry. But um, it's also a give and take because there's feathers trap in air. And so when ducks dive, a lot of times you'll notice if a duck comes, when it pops back up to the surface, it'll almost like bob, like it'll bounce. Um, And that's that air, that buoyancy pulling it up. Um, Cormorants, they're like, no, 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 we don't want that air. So they actually soak up a lot of the water so that they are basically like a little feathery fish down there swimming around. Um, And yeah, you're totally right. You always see them on like a tree or a telephone pole or something drying their wings. Um, and uh, they'll sometimes roost in these giant colonies where they're all drying together and hanging out. Um, 
they have to dry so often during the day um, that they actually spend like 50% of their day or more just resting and drying and um, hanging out. Um, And sometimes their colonies are so big in trees that their guano, you know, their bird poop will just pile up. And it's such a nitrogen shock to the tree that it'll actually kill the tree from all their bird poop. So (laughs) they are... uh, and I mean, I'm sure stuff like woodpeckers loves that, but uh, it's not fun for the tree when you get, you know, pooped to death. Well, and and uh, and bird poop slash pee is pretty caustic stuff. So yeah, yeah, I've definitely I love cormorants, but there's places around the lagoons in Humboldt where I've seen them just all up in the trees, and it's like. Eh, this doesn't look like a natural concentration. It looks too much. I don't know if <laughs> yep, this is really the best thing. But, you can uh, just hear the trees screaming every time they poop on it. <laughs> well, and all, and all the understory too. Just like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah don't uh, don't sit underneath the cormorant tree. That's for sure. Um, yeah, and you wanted to talk about a duck, but not a diving duck. You wanted to talk about buffalo head, which are adorable. Yeah, definitely. Buffalo heads are, uh, I really want to bring them up because they are probably my favorite to see on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I mean, maybe behind loons when they're migrating through, but the buffalo heads, they're like a sleek black iridescent duck, but the males, the back of their head is just this white crest almost, and they can raise it. And then their head is just like this big, white and black ball um and it's just really striking uh to see uh i remember these guys me and my friend zach were like running out on uh at new quarter park in williamsburg which is a very it's where like the jamestown colony was and uh so it's a very like tidal zone and uh we came out to this like spit of land and there were like four buffalo heads, two males, two females. And they were just so graceful. The water was clear and they are a diving duck. So they'll, their feet are way back on their body uh, to help them swim. Um, but if they get out of the water, they have a really hard time walking. And, uh, but watching them dive, they're just very graceful. And then they would pop right back up and they would be like perfectly dry. You know, uh, the water just like bounces right off of them. Can I get some of that for my windshield? Yeah, seriously. I feel like it'd be useful. <laughs> yeah, move over Rain-X. Uh, we're get, getting buffer, buffalo head buffer for the windshields. <laughs> uh, some cool facts I found about the buffalo head is they are highly reliant on northern flickers. Um, northern flickers are a oh, really? woodpecker species. Yeah. And uh, they're highly reliant on their nesting cavities. We have them here. We have northern flickers here. There's actually a pair not too far from where I live um, in one of the trees, but I think the tail feathers and the wing feathers are a different color Yeah, on the flickers here than the flickers where you are. Yep. Out west, you guys have red shafted um, northern flickers, and out here we have golden shafted northern flickers. Um, when I first uh, went out west for like the first time and like, you know, went to Yosemite and did all those national parks, I remember seeing a northern flicker and it had the red red shafts on the bottom of the wings and the tail and i had no idea what kind of bird it was i was like oh my god that thing's huge and it's all red like um and then i realized oh it's a northern flicker it's just you know color different i I kind of forgot that fact um 
But apparently they're, the northern flicker nesting cavities are like just the right size for the buffle head. They're like just big enough for them to nest in. And buffle heads are like on the smaller side for um, cavity tree nesting ducks. There's other ducks like the wood duck that nest in um, old woodpecker cavities and stuff. So the buffle heads are like just small enough to fit in. And so that helps them, uh, you know, um, not get outcompeted by by bigger uh, nesting ducks, so they're they're really relying on those northern flickers. Nice. Yeah. 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 I love northern flickers. So. <laughs> yeah. So I know. I know all the common, all the common charismatic birds. Yep. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I'm still learning all the time, and uh, it's really fun, and um, it's cool too. And like fish and birds uh maybe just animals in general just kind of like scratch like the pokemon like itch in me like i love pokemon as a kid and then now <laughs> uh with birds and and fish you know it's like identifying the species you feel like you know gotta catch them all except it's like gotta identify and see them all and there's just so much to learn it's, it's really fun yeah yeah i i have a couple bird nerd friends and i just I just kind of let it wash over me. <laughs> <laughs> like I got to stay in my fish world. Uh. Well, I mean, I think it's good to have to have both. Like I majored in wildlife in undergrad. And so I took the fish classes and the bird classes and the mammal classes. It was slanted towards mammals because we're mammals and we tend to slant everything towards us if we can. Yep. We're so biased. <laughs> Yep, we we are. But then when I went to get my graduate degree in fisheries, the fisheries and wildlife programs were really separate. And so most of the wildlife kids never took fisheries and most of the fish kids never took herps or birds. And I always thought that was kind of a shame that the wildlife kids should all take fish and the fish kids should all take birds or herps herps yeah. too yeah yeah i mean i definitely think i don't know about how much reptile fish interaction there is um but it's uh, more that they're like part of the the ecosystem yeah and, you know and herps being you know herps are amphibians and reptiles and oh, a lot so of jobs out there that are for amphibians get labeled as fisheries so, like, ah. if there's a, a project looking at a special, status, special status frog or a project to eliminate American bullfrog because they're invasive on the West Coast. They're from the East. I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. Those projects will get labeled as fisheries because you're, like, in the fisheries. Because fisheries isn't even just fish. Fisheries is, if it's... A species that you're interested in that occurs in water so that can be invertebrates like urchins and crabs and lobster um, and that's what we normally think of when we think of non-fish fishery species is the other species that we harvest like shellfish and uh, crustaceans right uh, but it can also like it, it kind of goes both ways, but often you'll like see a fish job advertised, but it's not fish. It's like frogs or salamanders or something. Sometimes oh. they're advertised as wildlife, but often they're advertised as fish. 
Okay, so fisheries. It's more than just fish. That's the it is more tagline. Than, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, great. Um, and yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, birds. I mean, that's kind of what our episode is here. Is about the interaction with with birds and fish. Are definitely there's a lot of back and forth. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's, I think it's important to to know not just you know your own little topic or your own uh, group of species, but also other ones too that they're interacting with. Um, are there any other um, fish estuary species you want to highlight? I would actually. So earlier you mentioned the whole gotta catch them all drive to birding, and I'm not a Pokemon person. But if there's one group of fishes where I can relate, it's the smelts, because there's not that many of them. And I've caught all but one Eulicon, also called hooligans or candlefish, because they're super oily. They're found from Oregon to southern Alaska, which is why I haven't caught them yet. I need to go farther north. And they're anadromous, like salmon. So they spawn in fresh water, migrate out to the ocean as juveniles, and return to fresh water as adults. Mm-hmm. Smell are cousins to salmon, and they have the streamlined bodies and adipose fins like salmon do. So if you've ever been salmon fishing, you know to look for the adipose fin to see if it's a hatchery fish. Well, smelts, true smelts, also known as osmerids, have those too. And adipose fins are readily visible on juvenile salmon and smelt less than two inches long. So you'll know, and I'm all about juvenile fishes. But anyway, smelt are much smaller than salmon, usually bait fish sized. So they're these small, really pretty fishes. And the prettiest is the anadromous longfin smelt, which is listed as threatened in California. They have these long, elegant pectoral fins, and they can get these really pretty pink and lavender highlights on their fins and sides. Night smelt can get those pretty colors too. They're also called night fish because they come to the shore at night to spawn in the surf, and that's when they're harvested with nets. Day fish or surf smelt do the same, but during the day. So both night fish and day fish migrate to the coast, aggregate in the surf zone, and deposit their eggs in the sand before returning to deeper waters. White bait smelt, which was once a general term applied to all smelts, but now refers to just one species, they have a tooth in the middle of their upper mouth called a pharyngeal tooth, and they're the only smelt that has that. Wakasagi are native to Japan, but were introduced to certain reservoirs in California because they look so similar to Delta smelt, which are this really important food source historically in the Delta. And that brings us to Delta smelt. Last but not least, Delta smelt are endemic to the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, meaning they exist nowhere else in the world, and they are listed as endangered in California. 
They don't swim all the way to the ocean as juveniles, but they do spawn in fresh water and migrate to the brackish waters of the estuary as juveniles before returning to fresh water as adults to spawn. They usually live only one year, but can sometimes live for two, and when threatened, they release a really strong cucumber odor to warn other members of their species away. This is called a Schreckenstoff response, and when I say cucumber, I don't mean cucumber like, oh, this wine has notes of strawberry and melon. I'm talking pull in the net, and it smells like you're standing in the middle of a cucumber patch what? on the back of that boat. And it's just one <laughs> fish. I was about to ask, have you ever smelled a smelt? But dang, you took my thunder from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you want to experience catching Delta smelt, don't. They're really endangered. But maybe pair your next fish dish with a nice cucumber salad. So... I caught Delta smelt while doing state-mandated monitoring for species recovery. That's why I've handled these special status species. Wow. And I wanted to talk about Delta smelt because they're kind of like the passenger pigeon of the Delta. They used to be so numerous, they fed everything else. There was even a short-lived commercial striped bass fishery in the Delta in the 1800s, and those striped bass were eating the then-abundant delta smelt. Birds relied on delta smelt, all the higher-order predators did. But within the last 50 years, they've gone from one of the most abundant species in the delta to one of the rarest and hardest to find. And it's just this little baitfish species, so they tend to get discounted as unimportant. But canaries were little too, and oh. they warned miners for generations when conditions were unsafe. So if the delta smelt, which evolved in the delta and supported so much life for so long in the delta, can't hack it in the delta of today, that's a pretty serious warning that merits our respect and our action. Yeah, and the fact it used to be this cornerstone, abundant species, and now it's critically endangered. You're just like, what the heck are, you know, all what used to eat them? What is it eating now? It's probably putting pressure on other stuff, too. And, um, man, I really feel for them. I hope that those little guys can bounce back. Well, that's extremely unlikely. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so Delta Smelt have really experienced the one-two punch of habitat loss, and invasive species. So first you have all the modifications mm -hmm. to the Delta for flood control and agriculture in the early 1900s, followed by all the dams, levees, and other changes due to the state water and Central Valley projects. Ooh. Today, the Delta is one of the most highly managed water systems in the world. All those engineered structures to store, control, transport, and distribute water resulted in massive habitat loss. But moreover, the delta no longer resembled the estuary where delta smell and other native species evolved. You can tell this by looking at satellite imagery of the delta. It's got all these right angles and looks nothing like a natural river delta. 
then you have the invasive species coming in on top of that. So the delta holds the dubious distinction of most invaded estuary in the world. So there's introduced sportfish that eat delta smelt, such as striped bass, introduced baitfish, such as American shad, that potentially compete with delta smelt, aquarium plants and other non-native aquatic vegetation slow down the water, make habitats less suitable for native fishes, and you also have unintentional introductions, often of non-native invertebrates, Delta smelt feed on these little invertebrates, and the non-native ones outcompete native prey sources. And finally, you have this little bivalve, the overbite clam, hitchhiking into the estuary. They're only about an inch wide, but they reproduce more rapidly than rabbits. And by 2000, they're all over the bottom of the delta. Being clams, they filter feed, and they filter feed really efficiently. So efficiently that there's no food for anyone else. They basically pull the base of the food web right out from under the fins of all the native fishes. So recovery of delta smelt is unlikely, but worth attempting because like I was saying earlier, we need to learn to ask less of the ecosystems that we live in and depend on, and we need to find more ways to work with them. That could be by returning to using floodplains to provide flood control and recharge groundwater supplies instead of attempting to rely on these engineered solutions, use the natural solutions so that we're also providing more space, more habitat yep. for the other species that we share our water and our land with. Yep, it's the one-two punch on name. Poor poor little smelt. Well, um, they're really interesting. I really love that, that pharyngeal tooth yeah. on that one. And the fact that they're so... They each got these weird characteristics. Uh, you're right that they are kind of like Pokemon. Um, I really hope that you're able to uh, see the candle smelt at some point, too. That sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Candlefish. I'm going to catch some hooligans one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that is an awesome uh I'd love hearing about your favorite fish species. Um, I'm definitely going to pay more attention to the fish uh, when I'm back in the Chesapeake Bay in, the, in that estuary. And uh, um, I hope, uh, you know, some of my bird species, too, um, that you can get a little bird love in you for the cormorant, the great blue heron, uh, and the buffalo. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't think there's many buffalo heads out on the West Coast, though. No, no. But I have – I've seen them because – I worked for a short time out in Montana, eastern Montana. So, yeah. Oh, cool. So got to see a bunch of ducks awesome. when I was working out there. A bunch of different ducks. <laughs> great. Um, and uh, you had a great idea, Katie, on with ending this episode that we could each kind of give a fact. Like I would do a fish fact and you would do some some bird fact. I have a really good fish fact I'm really excited about. Oh, hey. So, uh, do you want to do you want to go first with your bird? No. Well, so I want to ask you about the yeah. bird fact cuz 
I did get to take ornithology with the nerdiest birder I have ever met in person. <laughs> and I'm the nerdiest you've met over Zoom. <laughs> um, no, I'm no. sorry. He's got you beat. Like, he's got you beat. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll put it. Here's the context. You You know the Pacific Crest Trail. That goes from yeah. Mexico to Canada. Yeah. PCT. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So he and his fiance, when they got engaged to celebrate, they did 200 miles of the PCT in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Nice. <laughs> and they stopped every mile to do a point count and a transect. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. And they loved it so much that for their honeymoon, they decided to do the whole thing. <laughs> Lauren, I hope my fiance is listening. This is what we're going to do. So, but he also knew how to have fun. So he taught yeah. us um, the first day of class. He had us all stand up so and spread our arms out with lots of room so that we could learn the proper arm movement for flying. And do it the way the birds do it. Did it work for anyone? No, but that wasn't the point. The point was that you flap your arms correctly. So, um, yeah. So I wasn't able to take the lab for that class, but I know a bunch of physiology stuff. But you maybe think that's like not that interesting. I don't know. No, I think everything's cool. Yeah, yeah. Hit us with so wait. How like if I'm just like flapping my arms, how is that wrong? Like what what is what does a bird do that? Like how did he teach you the right way? So when we flap our arms as kids, we we tend to lift our arms straight out from our sides with our palms down and just like uh -huh. and and yeah. and we'll even do like kind of a stiff arm. Or a, yep. a, or a completely, like, floppy arm and our fingers are, like, going all over the place, right? So if you want to do it the way a bird does it, then your palms should be facing forwards in front of you. Huh. Okay. And so you... Um, and then you're, you lead with your elbows. So I'm kind of doing this while I'm describing it. But you lead with your elbows. So your elbows, if your arms are in front of you with your palms facing each other, then your uh -huh. elbows lead back towards your back. And then uh -huh. your forearms catch up. And then your hands catch up. And then your elbows again kind of lead, your inner elbows lead the stroke back towards oh. in front of you. Except... It's almost like, have you ever done the butterfly stroke? Yes. Like swimming? It's, it almost sounds like that a little, it's not the whirlwind, but it kind of reminds me of just like the backward motion, kind of. Yeah, so with butterfly, you're rotating your arms and you end up with like your pinkies facing each other. So this would be more with your palms facing okay. each other. But yeah, it's it's like not something that we, but if you think of intuitive. like holding a ball in front of you and that ball uh -huh. gets bigger... And then it gets smaller. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's how a bird. That's how a bird flaps. Unless you're a hummingbird, 
If you're a hummingbird, then your wing actually starts at the elbow joint. And so hummingbird wings are really just uh, forearms. Oh, so like when people mimic hummingbirds, I feel like, you know, they kind of put their arms close to their bodies and kind of. Yeah. And they like so fl- just flap off. their hands. Yeah that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's not too far off. But really, it would be like put your elbows at your sides and then do a figure uh-huh. eight with your forearms, because that's why they're able to hover so well is because they're doing a, a figure eight. <laughs> yeah, they're tre- wow. They're okay. treading air. <laughs> that is that is pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I really like that. And now next time I'm at a uh, wedding in the Midwest and um, I see people doing the chicken dance, I'm going to have to correct them on their form. <laughs> you can you can lead a flight lesson. <laughs> yeah, I'll lead a flight lesson for everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Katie, get ready for my fish. Oh, okay. Because the one I have for you is, do you know what the first fish in space was? No, I don't. Yeah, so um, this is really cool. Uh, I was really excited because it's actually this fish called the mummachog. Um, uh, that's a Native American word for going into crowds. Um, back home, I know them as mud minnows or gudgeons, we call them also. Um, they're a type of killifish. Um, okay. I don't really know what that is, but I thought, yeah, yeah I thought you would know. <laughs> I do um, know, and yes. They're these little, like, five- to six-inch minnows. They're everywhere in the Chesapeake Bay. You catch them all the time. I use them for bait a lot. You know, put some bread in a minnow trap, and it's five minutes later, it's full of these guys. Um, and uh, looking up about them, they're actually, like, these hardy, hardy fish. Um, they can survive in both fresh and salt water. Um, if the water gets too cold or the water level gets too low, they'll just bury themselves down in the mud and hang out there until, you know, conditions are better. Cool. Um, yeah. And for such a small fish, they live um, up to three years. Uh, uh, like I did not. I thought the life of a little minnow is, you know, eat fast and die young. So Usually. it's kind of cool that they live to three years. Yeah. Um, they eat basically everything um they're really good for mosquito control actually so um, people will sometimes introduce them if they have like a a pond or a man-made uh lake or something um they have these like silvery bellies that they flash to each other to you know show off and entice mates and the final cool fact before i go into their space travel um is they will actually wait for the high tide with a full moon and they'll lay their eggs on like grass or shells that are at the tide line. So then the tide will go down and their eggs will just be up in the air, you know, at this high tide mark. And for the whole month, their eggs will just be developing um, exposed to the air, you know, exposed to the elements and everything. And then once the next full moon comes and the tide gets up to that level again, the eggs will hatch. So like, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so these little guys, um, uh, I guess NASA wanted to see how different animals react in space. Um, and I think specifically with fish, they were trying to study like um, getting, uh, you know, space sickness the same way you would like seasickness. And, and so in 1973 on the Saturn 1B rocket, um, they uh, put some mummachog on there because they're just such a hardy fish like in test nasa did like they blew goldfish right out of the water um and uh so they brought the fish up into space and they hit zero gravity and for the first two days um 
the fish had no idea what was going on. They had two mummachogs up there, and they also had 50 um, uh, mummachog eggs. Uh, and the two fish didn't know what was going on. They were, like, spinning around, swimming in loops. Uh, but by day three, they had this regular swimming pattern they would do. And uh, what they would do is they would put their back to the interior lights um, in the rocket. And then they would, you know, just kind of swim with their back facing the interior lights because they were like, oh, I guess this is the sun now. So, uh, you know, we should be the sun is up, you know. Um, And interestingly, though, they hatched those um, eggs of the of the gudgeons. They put those 50 eggs into water and let them hatch. Mm -hmm. And immediately upon hatching, um, those fish weren't confused at all. They were orientated themselves with the, the light being the sun up. So somehow as you know in their eggs they figured out like how to deal with you know no gravity and stuff so like they're not just dumb little minnows you know they can figure out how to how to survive in zero gravity so i just thought that was so cool yep fish aren't stupid yeah 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 smarter than you think you know (laughs) which is a good thing because we're descended from them so yeah Yeah, well, that's like kind of all I have for my little fish fact and about some of my favorite estuary birds. Um, do you have anything else on estuaries that uh, any cool facts or anything else? So I have a saying I forgot to share that okay. I got from one of my Humboldt State professors who told us that fisheries science is like counting all the trees in the forest except all the trees are underwater where you can't see them and they're constantly moving around. And this captures a lot of what fisheries science is about, whether it's a species that folks harvest, salmon, bass, lobster, crab, or a listed species like the pallid sturgeon or delta smelt, we need to estimate how many there are in the wild to either set fishing regulations or evaluate recovery efforts. I actually have another saying, if you'll indulge me. This one comes from my advisor. He used to say, it shouldn't be drink like a fish because fish in freshwater don't need to drink. They're in freshwater. And sharks don't need to drink a lot of water because Mm -hmm. they balance their salts with their urine. So instead of drink like a fish, it should be drink like a marine teleost, (laughs) which for obvious reasons, I think has never caught on. But if you want to be correct, it's drink like a marine teleost. Have to share those two sides because those are two of my favorite about about fisheries for sure. Yeah. Those are good, and they definitely give an insight to, I don't know, kind of like y'all's mindset and just like what it is to be like a researcher. Yeah, yeah. Um, And like I said, juvenile fish are my jam. So uh, that's kind of goes hand in hand with estuaries because they're nurseries and migration corridors and seasonal feeding grounds. So uh, those are really important roles that they play and uh your backyard estuary if you live on a coast probably has a whole bunch of really cool stuff that you aren't even aware of so my recommendation is if you live near a body of water get yourself 
a mask and a snorkel and snorkel it. Wow. Even if it's just like a little pond or something? So if it's a pond, it's even easier because you can just like stick your face in and oh. have your body out and and see all the little critters. In fact, you'll probably want that because in some places there's like shrimp that will bite your face when you do this. But they <laughs> look really cool. And <laughs> if you're in an estuary, uh, you'll want to... Estuaries are a little difficult because they tend to be really turbid. All that tidal action really yeah. stirs things up. Uh, but some of the most enjoyable snorkeling I've done is actually on rivers. Here in the Pacific Northwest, our ocean is really cold and visibility is really low. Mm -hmm. So scuba diving, it just I'd rather be tide pooling than going on scuba in the Pacific Northwest. Personally, I can see a lot more stuff. And if I have questions, I can ask someone audibly with my voice and they can answer. And yeah. my invertebrate nerd friends can just totally nerd out about nudibranchs. It's great. <laughs> uh, whereas if you're underwater, you can hardly see anything and you have to mime your questions. It's terrible. But... Snorkeling the rivers, especially in the summer, you can see the steelhead and salmon that are making their way upstream to spawn. And you can actually swim with the steelhead and with the salmon. And they're just incredible. And to see them, to see fish in their own habitat. Right. And even if it's not summer... Um, if it's not that season, you're going to see little salmon in their habitat and you're going to pretty much in any rivers in the U.S. You're going to see suckers and suckers are really cool fish. Uh, they look a little raggedy, but they're really cool. Um, and you're just going to see all these different fish in their habitat and since you're in a river, like you don't need a scuba tank. You don't need a whole bunch of gear. You're going to want to snorkel. You're going to want a mask. Yeah. Um, and you can, you can visit the underwater world and see what it's like for the crayfish and the yeah. fish that are swimming in there. So that's, that's my recommendation. That's awesome. I'm going to have to take that. I'll, once the water warms up a bit here in West Virginia, I'll definitely try it because it's crystal clear water. And uh, it'd be cool to see a little crawdad running around and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So and, you know, the other good thing is once we can all travel again, your snorkel and your mask pack really nicely. So when I went to New Zealand before this pandemic thing, I brought my snorkel and my mask and I... <laughs> put it on and like stuck my head under docks and stuff and saw all these cool fish and then had a bunch of shrimp bite my face but I saw all these cool fish so it was worth it well awesome um Katie it's been really fun talking with you I've learned a ton about fish um I hope you learned a little bit about some birds some stuff you didn't already know because you already know a ton about them well okay what would be your recommendation for people with birds my Go recommendation for, for people with birds is to, like, 
learn learn a bird like learn an individual so like example like your backyard or maybe there's like a route you take your dog on a walk um pick like a tree or pick like something and if i bet you day after day there's some bird that like a cardinal um, out here east they're really easy to see that visits that spot regularly like it's its spot you know it's part of its territory it likes to eat there it likes to perch there and sing and um like you can just kind of pick that individual and just kind of get to know them, get to know like, oh, they're feeding on the ground today or, oh, they're feeding on the tree today. They're singing over there. Um, they're hanging out with this other bird or with a big flock of birds, you know. And it's kind of cool because they almost become like little like friends or like your neighbor or something that you, you know, wave to when you walk by. It's like, oh, hey, Mr. Cardinal. Yep. You're singing again from that perch. Yeah, just like yesterday. All right. Have a good day. So I always think that's kind of fun and a good way to get to know kind of the personality, the quirks of um, different species. Nice. Nice. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Dirty Bird listeners, definitely check out the Fisherwoman podcast. Um, There are some great stuff on there. You can learn a ton more about fish and fisheries and the important environments um, on this planet. Thank you so much, Sean, and uh, for the invitation and for <laughs> listening to me nerd out about fish. <laughs> it was really fun. Stay fishy, my birdies. Um, yes. <laughs> I usually say, like, stay dirty, my birdies, at the end, so I don't you know. You do. You do. <laughs> I usually say happy fishing. Happy fishing. That's a good one, too. <laughs> dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky the Stone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Tim's on the ground in the concrete jungle I might get into 